Amen. And I want to thank Bill for asking me to come out here and share with you today. And uh, I had the privilege of having dinner with Bill, and he was talking about this, and it's a great turnout for the very first one. And then I found out he's only a little over five years sober, and I about fell out of my chair. Because I don't know, if you're an alcoholic, like I'm an alcoholic, at five years sober, there is no way that I could have put something like this on. I could barely even get out of bed and put my clothes on in the morning. It took me a while here in Alcoholics Anonymous to learn how to live differently. So you wear your sobriety well. I am so very grateful to be here tonight for a number of different reasons. And um, first and foremost, I'm very grateful to be here because i got a lot of stuff going on in my life right now. And I don't like the stuff that's going on in my life. And I know when I don't like the stuff going on in my life, I belong right here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because it doesn't matter what's going on in my life, my job is here in AA to put my hand out and help somebody that needs help. Everything else doesn't matter. God will take care of the rest. I can worry about it. I can manage it. I can manipulate it. And it's still going to turn out the way God wants it to turn out. So if I just keep my focus here in Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't have to worry about that other stuff. I was working with my sponsee the other day, and she asked me how I was doing, and I said, I'm, you know, some good days, some bad days. And then she said to me, how are you sleeping at night? And I thought that was a rather interesting question. I said, I'm sleeping fine. Why? And I realized that, yeah, that's how we used to be. When we worry about our problems, we can't lay our head down at night and sleep. The mind starts to rave. And because I'm very active here in Alcoholics Anonymous, I get to lay my head down and go right to sleep. I don't have to race on the mind. I'm really grateful to be here also because I turned 12 years sober on Wednesday. And I can't think of another place I'd rather be than right here with you on my 12-year birthday. I can tell you that when I woke up Wednesday morning, I felt a sense of peace that was absolutely spiritual. That's the only way I know how to say it. I woke up that morning and knew no matter what happens on this journey, I will be okay. Now, it may not turn out the way I want it to turn out, but I will be okay. All I have to do is stand today and suit up and show up. And that sometimes is a very tall order, but we get taught how to do that here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to welcome those who are new. I um, I always find it astonishing when people who are new can come to activities like this and stand up and say that they're new. That takes a tremendous amount of courage, and I did not have that kind of courage when I got here. I just stood in the back of the room, and I was not an alcoholic. So I just stood back there, and I watched you, and I observed, and I listened. And uh, somewhere along the way, I caught alcoholism, and I'm very grateful for that. I'm here to share with you a little bit about what I used to be like, what I'm like now, and uh, how that happened. And I can tell you that I do not look like my story, and I'm very grateful for that. Alcoholics Anonymous has a way of changing us. And I took a lot of direction when I got here, because I'll tell you that um, when I got here, I walked in the rooms with uh, torn up blue jeans and hostages t-shirts. And if you don't know what hostages t-shirts is, stick around, listen to my story, and you'll find out. I had a uh, military karate MV rag tied to my uh, belt loop because I was tough. And uh, I sat in those meetings every day, and I just cried like a baby. Because I had absolutely no idea how I was going to do life now sober. That was terrifying to me. I had to keep something between me and reality. And you were telling me that I could find that something here that I no longer had to drink in you, and I did not believe you. 
I also uh, did not believe that I had a problem. I came here and I was not an alcoholic. You guys had a lot of problems. I did not. You guys had gone to jail. I had not. Well, I went to jail once, but I really don't count. <laughs> you guys had uh, 502s or DUIs, whatever you call them. I didn't have those. And, you know, I was sharing with a couple of the women at dinner, and they were asking me, they heard uh, me before, and they were asking me about my daughter. And um, my daughter a couple weeks ago asked me, Mom, how come you never got a 502? And I'm like, I don't know, I just never got caught. Because the truth is, I drank and drove all the time. And I am a blackout drinker, which means that I drive in blackout, and I have no idea what's going on. And I don't know why I didn't get in DUIs, but I'm very grateful for that today. And I just was not an alcoholic. I had it together. There was nothing going on in my life. And none of that is true. You know, it took me a while hanging out here to realize that I was completely delusional. And the way I, I figured that out is by watching you. And your life, they didn't look like mine. And I would start to just barely open up to the people here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I would tell them some of the things that were going on in my life. And their eyes would get really big. And sometimes they'd kind of slide a little bit away from me. And I was like, oh, I guess I shouldn't have told that story. <laughs> and I learned here that I had a lot wrong. I've also been taught here in Alcoholics Anonymous that my problem is not just drinking. That my problem is how I interact with life. My problem is my thinking. Because the truth is, long before I started drinking, I'm a liar, I'm a cheat, I'm a con, and I'm a thief. And I'm doing all those things drunk or sober. If I'm not firmly planted here in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, even at 12 years of sobriety, I'm still doing those things. Because that's the kind of mind that I have. I, um, I have a nice little job, and periodically I get account cash for that job, and that cash makes thoughts of Robin Banks pop into my head. And I start counting that cash, and when we get a lot of cash on a particular day, I start thinking about that motorcycle that I got parked in the garage, and I need more chrome for that motorcycle. And, you know, my boss doesn't treat me very well, and he doesn't pay me enough, and he takes me for granted, and I start, you know, making the list. And, um, you know, I've been taught here in Alcoholics Anonymous that it really doesn't matter what's going on in my mind. What matters are my actions. And my actions are I keep counting that cash, I stick it in the envelope, I open that safe drawer, and I drop that money in there. And as that drawer closes, I think to myself, dummy, you were supposed to steal that money. <laughs> and then I get on the phone and I call my sponsor, and I tell my sponsor what I was thinking, and she says to me, did you steal the money? I said, no, and she says, then you don't have to make amends, just go about your day and be of service. So that's also something that you have taught me. And when I'm thinking about you, I can't be thinking about me. And it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. If I'm thinking about you, I can't be thinking about me. But I'll tell you that before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not care about anybody else but me. And I didn't get taught those things by my parents. That's just who I was. I didn't have any morals or values, drunk or sober. And, um, and I thought that that was because of my parents. And the longer that I'm sober, I've learned that um, I have a fabulous father, and he taught me a tremendous amount of uh, values and morals, and I'm very grateful for that. But I couldn't see that at the time. And, you know, I was one of those kids that I still stood into the back of the room, and I wanted to blend into the woodwork, and I wasn't interested in having friends. I um, I just was a naughty kid, but you didn't know I was naughty because I was a very good liar. So I was the kid that if your parents thought you were with me, you were in good stead. But I was the one who was conniving how to crawl out the window in the middle of the night and go down to the concrete factory and play out down there and, you know, all the other things that we were doing. And, uh... You know, again, my parents didn't teach me that, but 
I don't like reality, and I'm going to put something between me and reality. And I'm not drinking yet. I'm a good student in school, and I live on this cul-de-sac with seven teenage boys. And they like to party. They like to take their girls out. They like to go out and have fun. But they don't really like to work. Now, I like to work. Because I don't socialize, so I have to do something with my time after school. So I babysit a lot, and I work at my mom's office, and I make a lot of money. And I get this really bright idea. I go to one of these boys, and I say, I know you need a couple hundred bucks. Sign this contract, pay me 12.5% interest, and I'll lend you a couple hundred bucks. They call that loan sharking. That's against the law. I make banks. <laughs> Those boys caught wind of that and they start coming knocking on my door and I have three or four different contracts. And one of those boys couldn't pay back the contract, so I took a little bit of the profit. I went and hired two football players, and he promised to pay me back my money the following day. And I didn't ask those two football players what they did, because I didn't care. All I cared about is my bank account got fat again. And I'm not drinking and using yet. You know, those are my ideas. That's who I am at my core. I have my first drink at the age of 15 years old. I go to a party with my boyfriend at the time, and he's got a friend who stands about six foot two. And I, to the best of my recollection, I had never touched a drop of alcohol prior to this evening. But I turned to that boy and I said to him, I'm going to drink you under the table. And I don't know where those words came from, but that's what I said to him. And that's exactly what I proceeded to do. Because I'm that kind of alcoholic that that bottle goes up and the bottle goes down when the bottle is empty. And I really don't care what's in that bottle. And I certainly don't care that you brought that bottle. You best have brought you because you ain't getting any if I haven't. I've already told you I am a blackout drinker, and I start my drinking in a blackout. There's about 15 minutes in front of that invisible line, and then I am over the top, out of control. I don't remember what I've done and a few things, but I do remember I'm very grateful that I don't remember. But I come to that evening, and I'm mixing screwdriver drivers in the kitchen, and it's all vodka going in that glass with a little splash of orange juice for color. I come back out of that blackout and they're throwing me into a pickup of a truck telling me that the cops are coming and i got to go because I'm a minor. I come back out of that blackout and my brothers are dragging me into our house from our front yard. I had a two and a half day hangover. And a year and a half after that drink, I am now a high school dropout. I'm homeless. I'm drinking on a daily basis and I'm putting needles in my arm. And that's where my alcoholism takes me. As fast as I can get out of control. Prior to that drink, I already told you I was a straight-A student. I minded my P's and Q's. I did what my parents told me to do. And I'm out of control already. And I'm so selfish and self-centered, I can't think about anybody but me. And I'm running the streets, and I run, I meet my first husband, and we live in a uh, gas station, a converted gas station out in Kentucky country on Sierra Highway with a local drug dealer. And I think I have arrived. <laughs> and one particular night, that drug dealer runs down our hallway screaming to the bathroom. And I think to myself, oh, I better get up and go find out what's going on. And I go back to that bathroom. Bathroom, and as I come around that corner, that boy is spurting blood out of four bullet holes. And I can tell you that my first thought was not about him, and he's going to bleed to death, and I better get 911 out here. My first thought was about me, because I know I'm a minor, and the cops are going to come. And I know my father has filed a runaway report on me, and I'm going to go to jail. And I know they're going to find that drug paraphernalia in our house, and they're going to think it's mine. Now, why are they going to think it's mine? I don't know, because it's in the same house as me, and everything revolves around me. So I holler off to my husband, and I tell him, you've got to take that drug paraphernalia and throw it over the back fence into the wash. My husband comes walking into that bathroom with blood pouring down the side of his face with bullets sticking out of his teeth. And I turned to that man, I said, don't you worry about that bully. You just go back out there and keep throwing that drug paraphernalia over that back fence. All red 
saying I'm so selfish and self-centered I can't think about anybody but me and I'm only a year and a half into my drinking and eating. And I went on to marry that man and I was a horrible wife to him and I would have told him for a very long time that he was a horrible husband to me. And the truth is I couldn't stay faithful to him and I could not be in that marriage. I had no life skills whatsoever to be able to do anything. And we had a very... uh volatile relationship and I had two children with him and you know when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous some of my secrets were the violence that I had done to my children and when I got here I would have told you that I was a very good mom but that is the biggest lie that I told you know my boy I had my son when I was uh, 18 years old and my parenting skills were nothing and I remember I was drinking drive with that kid, and I've already told you I am a blackout drinker. So I would strap him in the car seat, because I'm a good mom, you know, I want to be safe with him in the car. And then I would drink and drive, which means that I'm in a blackout. And I come to one morning, and that little boy's got the bruise the size of a grapefruit on the side of his head. And to this day, I can't tell you whether I beat that child because he wouldn't stop crying, or I banged his head on the wall trying to put him to bed. And those are my secrets that I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. And those are the things that I stood at the back of the room and read your steps, and you said I had to tell you those things, and I'm not telling you that stuff. I don't care what happens here. There's no way I'm going to tell you that stuff. At two years of age, I picked that boy up by his shirt front and slammed him up against the wall and screamed at him at the top of my lungs because he won't do it my way. I'm not going to tell you those things. But when I sat in the back of the room, there were people like me that stood up here and they talked about those secrets. And I sat back there and I cried. And I thought, I know those people don't know all these people in this room. These people are all strangers to them. And they can talk about that very stuff that I'm not going to talk about. Maybe, maybe I could find some freedom here. And so I, I give back what I've been given, and that's exactly why I talk about that stuff, because that's what was given to me. But before I got there, I, um, I told you that, uh, you know, that marriage was bad, and we were back and forth, and in between going back and forth, I uh, go hunting. And that's where hostages come in, and, you know, I just, um, I was the kind of girl that uh, I liked my men going into prison or coming out of prison. Makes them really unavailable. I like that. I like them to have lots of tattoos, and I like them not to work. Now, I don't know why I like it like that, but that's how I like it. And my sponsor has told me that I don't have to figure it out. I just don't have to choose it that way anymore. So I'm out there running and gunning, and every hostage that I take, I steal their T-shirt. Now, I don't know why I do that, but that's what I do, which is where the T-shirts came in when I came here. And I don't get to know anybody. I'm not interested in that. I barely, if they tell me their name, I am not going to remember it tomorrow. I really don't care if they're married. I'm not telling you I'm married. I don't care what's going on in your life. I'm not going to help you fix it. All I want to do is drink. That's it. And if you can facilitate that, you can hang out with me. So I'm driving down in uh, San Fernando Valley. I did a lot of my drinking down there in San Fernando Valley. And I'm one of those alcoholics that I draw lines in the sand. And those lines are, I'm never going to do that. And it really doesn't matter what that is. You could say that for anything. One of the things I'm never going to do is pick up a hitchhiker. I remember what my mama told me about picking up hitchhikers, and that's bad. But this guy is gorgeous. <laughs> and I'm in between hostages or in between husbands, and it gets me just about 30 seconds past him, and I say, oh, you've got to go back. So I go around the block, and I get him and put him in my car, and we proceed to my son's preschool. And as I get out of the car, I see the keys hanging out of the ignition, and I have a little moment of clarity. And I think to myself, this is a bad idea. And then on the heels of that is, what other choice do you have? 
because I don't have any choices when I'm out there drinking and using. And I go into that preschool and I come out carrying that little baby. And that poor sucker is still sitting in that car. And I do what I'm going to do with any man that I am not interested in getting to know. We go to a bar to get drunk. And as we walk into that bar, that bartender says to me, Lady, you cannot bring that baby in here. And I look at that bartender absolutely astounded. I said, he's a baby. He's not going to drink. What's the problem? <laughs> now, again, I cannot tell you what happened to my son that evening because I am a blackout drinker. My last recollection with that, about that evening was that conversation with that bartender. Now, I can tell you I came to the next day with a black eye on my eye and no idea how I got that black eye. But the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous have assured me, whether I remember it or not, I participated 100% in getting that black eye. And that started a 10-year drinking career with that man, and I loved to drink with him. He was as crazy as I was. Especially when he drank tequila. I wouldn't drink with him when he drank tequila because he'd get mean as a rattlesnake. But everything else, he was pretty fun to be with. And he always came back into my life the same way. He'd be fresh out of jail, standing on a street corner with his thumb hanging out. I'd be in between husbands or in between hostages, and I'd drag him home. He'd hang out for a while, and then his wife would call, tell him, you've got to come home. And I'd drive him down to a meeting about Paul's because I knew he had a drinking problem. And I would tell him, you've got to get your drinking under control. And I'd go home, and I would drink. And one particular day, I picked him up, and it is a progressive disease, and his disease has progressed. And he is absolutely, certifiably insane. But I like to hang out with him. And I pick him up, and he's talking about that the FBI's got him bugged, and he thinks the FBI's got me bugged. I'm like, honey, you just got out of jail. I haven't been around you for a while. How do they know about me? He wants to go on some Wahoo shit for a videotape that he says has been manufactured. Now, I know that videotape is a figment of his imagination. But I tell him, okay, I'll go with you. Because the truth is that I will sell my soul to the devil to get what he can give to me. Now, by this time, I have my two children, and he makes me a little bit nervous to be with them because he's talking a lot of crazy stuff. So I tell him, you can only hang here for the weekend. My kids are coming home, and then you've got to go. So I do what I always do with him. On Sunday, I drive him down to a meeting about Alcoholics Anonymous. I tell him, you got to get your drinking under control. I go home, I tuck my children into bed, I get up for work the next day, I go to work and my phone rings. And it's him. And he says to me, what are you doing? I go, well, I'm working, what are you doing? Now, I know he's not working, I don't want my men to work. And he says to me, your four-year-old daughter's asleep on my chest. And I said, you're not supposed to be at my house when I'm not there. He said, I know, but I needed a safe place to go. So there I go, erasing the line in the sand for that. And I said, okay, you can hang out there, and then you need to be on your way. Absolutely zero regard for those children. My next conversation with that man was six hours later, and he had just murdered two people and seriously maimed another. And now, as a direct result of my drinking career, I find myself involved in a murder trial. And it's really hard to explain to the police how you have nothing to do with this murder when they have phone records showing that this man called you 20 minutes after he killed these people. It's really hard to explain to the police how you have nothing to do with this murder when your little boy testifies to the fact that he had that murder weapon in our home that day. Now, I did not have anything to do with that murder, but there were a lot of other things going on in my life that I did not want the authorities to know about. You know, that little girl of mine, I think she's retarded, because she doesn't know how to speak. But I'm not going to ask anyone to look at her, because you start asking the doctors to look at your kids, and they want to know about you. They want to know about your history and how much do you drink and how much do you use and did you use when you were pregnant with them. And I don't know what that has any difference to do with her problem. 
She's retarded. I didn't drink and use when I was pregnant with her, and what I'm doing now in my life has no never mind to anything. So I'm not asking anybody. And I figure eventually she'll get into kindergarten. When she gets into kindergarten, they'll figure out what's wrong with her. It's their responsibility anyway, not mine. And I'm working a lot because I don't know how to uh, be a functioning alcoholic. I either work or I drink. I don't know how to do both. Now, I think I know how to do both, but the truth is, is that if I start drinking at my business lunch, I am not going back to work. So I'm working a lot. Now, I'm a bad alcoholic, so I'm working 18 hours a day, seven days a week to try and not drink. And I come home one day from work early. I don't know why that particular day, but I come walking into the house, and my little girl's talking to the babysitter. And I say to the babysitter, how do you talk to my daughter? She's retarded. She talks baby talk. That babysitter gives me that look. You know that look we get. That incomprehensible demoralization. That babysitter says to me, your daughter speaks Spanish. Now, I don't speak Spanish. My daughter was almost four years of age before she spoke her first words of English, and I had absolutely no idea. And that's what I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, that man went off to prison for life, and I went off to life called prison. Because I've also been taught here in Alcoholics Anonymous that prison isn't only behind those bars. It can be what we make of it. And I don't know what to do with my life. I'm a high school dropout, I'm a single parent of two children, and the solution I've been using for the last two years just went off to prison, and he's not coming home. And I don't know what to do. And I asked someone probably for the very first time, help. And what he suggested is go back to school, get a degree, get a better job, and you'll be able to support your children. And I remembered way back when, before I was a high school dropout, I was a straight-A student. And I thought, that will work. I will do that. I will get a degree, I'll get a better job, and I'll live normal like everyone else. So I signed up for school, and I sat up here in the front row, and I didn't drink and use, and I turned in my homework every week, and guess what? I got straight-A's. And then I got restless, and I got irritable, and I got discontent, and school is a hassle, and this takes too long, and I don't want to do this anymore, and I look across the room, and there's my solution, sitting over there in the bad boy section. <laughs> and I drive that man home, we set up house, get married, he brings two children into our marriage, and let me assure you, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not belong here. I was not like you people. My life was okay. Now, here is the truth. That little four-year-old's ten. That little girl's attempting suicide. Because there's things going on in her life that no little girl should have to go through. And, you know, I have friends now who have little girls at ten years of age. And they're babies. And I think to myself how bad that little girl's life was. That at 10 years of age, her only solution was to take her own life. That's a lot of pain. My son is 15 years old, being arrested by the Burbank Police Department, and I go bail him out of jail loaded higher than a kite, knowing it's only a matter of time. Because one more time, the cops want to know what's wrong with me. We know what's wrong with the kid. He's out of control. But as his parent, what is wrong with you? And my stepson is 15, stealing cars, beating up on people. My 17-year-old stepdaughter is pregnant with twins. And that husband of mine that's the solution to all my problems, he's been barricaded in the bedroom for the last two and a half months with the doors and the windows screwed shut with a loaded semi-automatic rifle. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not belong here. My life was just a little bit off kilter. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about that. For some of us alcoholics, that alcoholic life is the only normal life we know. And that was the case for me. I did not believe that everyone lived the way I lived, but I thought I didn't have a choice because I tried. I changed all the outside stuff, and I always ended up in the same place. But I did not have a problem. So I went to Al-Anon. 
Now, I've already told you that I'm a very bad parent, and I gave my son no life skills whatsoever. And that child's been drinking and using since he was nine years of age. And that boy hit the streets and was homeless for seven and a half years out in the streets of Kahunga, living on flat rooftops, going to Kmart to clothe and feed himself. And I did not think that I could stay sober through that. But the people here in Alcoholics Anonymous told me I can stay sober through anything if I'm willing to put my hand out and think about you and not about me. Because therein lies my solution to no matter what's going on. And I remember I was a couple years sober and that kid was 18 years of age and the police dragged him up to the porch of my house, beat up, bloody, drunker than a skunk. And that officer said to me, is this your boy? I said, yes, it is. He says he's homeless. I said, he is. And that officer gave me that look. You know that look. And he said to me, well, can't he stay here tonight? And one more time, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself, because what came out of my mouth was no. You run his name, you'll find he has a warrant for his arrest. He can take him on to jail. He'll have a place to sleep. And then I turned around and walked into the house, curled up into a ball, and started to sob. Because I knew without a shadow of a doubt that that boy was where he was at as a direct result of the abuse and the things I had done to him growing up. And I picked up the phone and called a woman here in Alcoholics Anonymous and told her what was going on. And she said to me, you're right, he is. And there's nothing you can do about it except be a sober member here in Alcoholics Anonymous and maybe your son stands a chance. And so every time that pain got so bad, I would put my hand out and I would help another woman who was struggling with her kid. And that saved me. And two years ago, I took a 10-year cake at my home group and that boy took a one-year cake. And I watched the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous come on in his life. And I watched him get better. And I watched our relationship repair. Now, I didn't repair because he was doing the work because that child barely went to one meeting a week and wouldn't work the steps no matter what I told him. <laughs> and we still had a volatile relationship. We couldn't be together more than 30 minutes and we were yelling and screaming at each other. And so I'd go to my sponsor and I would say to my sponsor, I know if he would just get to be a man to make amends to me, we could be fine. <laughs> And my sponsor would say, the problem is you. I said, no, no, I made my amends to him. It's his turn. And she would say to me, the problem is you. So I said, all right, fine, I surrender. What do I need to do? She said, obviously, if that relationship's not repaired, you still have to do amends. So I started bringing him hot meals. And I started taking him to the movies. And I started doing all the things with him that I should have done growing up. And a little job came, <clears throat> came open at my work, and I went to my son and I asked him if he'd like to come and work for me. And he was a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he was a good employee. He showed up every day, worked hard, he was honest, and I knew that things were going to be fine. And then a year and a half ago, Monday, the day after Super Bowl Sunday, that boy called in sick to work, so drunk he could barely even talk straight. Now, I know my son's father, and I know this is a progressive disease. But I have to practice the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, no matter what the cost is to me. And on Tuesday, I brought that boy in my office, and I terminated him. And six weeks later, that boy was in jail again. Now, that was a little over a year and a half ago. And that child's been to jail at least 12 times. And back in April, he went to jail four times in the month of April, twice in a 24-hour period. And I don't know why, but every time that child gets out of jail, he wants to call mommy. And when he called me the second time in a 24-hour period, I said to him, Sweetheart, you've got to lose my number. You cannot call me anymore. And I hung up the phone. 
And I don't know if my son is dead or alive, in jail, homeless. I have no idea. But what I do know is that my job is here in Alcoholics Anonymous, helping somebody else, not him. He's God's work now. I don't know what the path is for him. I can't tell you that over this last year and a half, my son has lost his mind. He thinks that the government has planted a chip in his brain and they transmit his thoughts over the Internet. He's a good student, so he takes hostages and he lives out in Pomona with a hostage and he runs around their front yard chasing people who aren't there. I know for me, my solution lies here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, that little girl of mine, she is the apple of my eye. And I'll tell you that um, when I was a year and a half sober, she decided she didn't like Alcoholics Anonymous, and she went to go live with her dad. And I didn't think that was a good idea, but again, my sponsor said that I needed to let her go. And what I needed to learn to do is learn who Linda was. And I could be anything as long as I was hiding behind you. But I couldn't be who I was. I didn't even know what that meant. I couldn't even tell you what my favorite color was. My favorite color was whatever his favorite color was, and I had a lot of his. And my sponsor said that I needed to learn who I was. And that little girl went to go live with her dad, and uh, I, I started to learn who I was here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you taught me how to be different. And you said that I couldn't wear those torn-up jeans anymore to the meetings, and I had to start dressing different, and I had to start acting different, and I, I had to start talking differently. And I didn't know what any of that had to do with sobriety, but I was willing to try. And that's where I found that I learned to, um, that I love to ride motorcycles. And uh, you told me here that I could do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I bought myself a Harley Davidson and I started to ride. And I can tell you that last year I went on a journey to uh, somewhere. I don't even remember where because it doesn't matter. But my journey started at the Culver City Police Station. And I picked up nine motorcycle cops and we went flying off in the rain to another state. And those cops have no idea that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because you told me that I can go out among the normal people and live life if I practice these principles in all my affairs. And I had a fabulous time. They thought, wow, this is a really cool girl. She rides a big bike and goes out in a rainstorm and doesn't even complain about it. Yeah, they ride. They all carry their guns. I know mean guns. I'm not going to open my mouth. <laughs> And that little girl lived with her dad for a while, and then he died drinking and driving. And she got to come back and live with me. And I can tell you I did not want that gift. I've already destroyed three children's lives, and I do not know how to be a good parent. And the members here in Alcoholics Anonymous told me, you do know how to be a good parent. You've been sponsoring women for a few years. Sponsor your daughter. And I thought, well, that was an interesting concept. I'll try that. She was in her 12th grade in uh, high school, and that's what we did. And that little girl graduated from high school, and then she came to me with these papers. And she says to me, Mom, I want to go to college. And I said to her, honey, we are not a family who goes to college. <laughs> Four generations of people in our family are high school dropouts. You are lucky you got a high school diploma. Be happy with that. <laughs> My little girl has learned here in Alcoholics Anonymous that she gets to ask for more. And she says to me, Mommy, I really want to go to college. I said, all right, come on, we'll go to a meeting. Hey, someone there sent their kid to college. They'll teach us what to do. And you did. You told me to fill out the paperwork, and it asked you really hard questions like, what are your assets? I don't have any. How much in your savings account? Zero. And I would come back to the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous with those papers, and I would say, they're not going to let her into college. And you would say to me, just do the footwork. And so that's what I did. And my little girl got accepted into a little private university out in Colorado. And she just graduated back in April. And that may not seem like a big deal to you, but that's a huge deal to me. 
Because I'm overall the first person in four generations in our family to graduate from college. Now, I do have $85,000 worth of debt that I don't know how to pay. <laughs> My little girl called me. She said, Mom, our loans will come due in December. What are we going to do? I said, someone in Alcoholics Anonymous will teach us. I have no idea. But if I look at it too long, what I want to do is just blow my head off because I think this is a really bad idea. Now, I didn't get where I'm at because I'm not willing to do the work. And the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is what has transformed my life. And the two steps that have made the biggest impact in my life is the fourth step in the ninth step. Now, the fourth step of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about a fearless moral inventory. And I've already told you some of the things that were on my fourth step. And my fourth step was not fearless. There were things that were going to send me to prison, and I am not writing that stuff down. And if I do write it down, I'm not telling you. So I told my sponsor that I'd rip out that stuff, because I'm not interested in going to jail now that I'm sober. I didn't go before, well, once, <laughs> and I'm not going after. So I told her I'm going to rip all that stuff out of my fifth step, so when she sees all these holes, she'd understand why. And I had a very smart sponsor, because she said, that's fine, just write it down. And the steps are in order for a reason, because I can tell you when I got to that fifth step, I didn't care if I went to jail. Excuse me, I didn't want to live the way I was living anymore. Those holes are starting to be filled in my house. The graffiti has been painted over, and I'm not waking up with black eyes anymore. And I'm liking this just fine. So I read all those secrets to my sponsor. But I'll tell you, I didn't make it easy for the AA police because I made her hike way back into the back mountains to read that visit at Because <laughs> I know you're going to come and arrest me. And you didn't. And we come walking out of that mountain. She said to me, how do you feel? And I said, I feel quiet. She said, that's peace and serenity. And I turned to her and I said, I don't like it. <laughs> and they brought me right up close to me and I didn't like me. And the few things that I knew about me, I, I, I don't want to know anymore. She told me, it'll grow on you. It has. And the next step that's made the biggest impact is my ninth step. Now, I already told you I'm a thief. And I'm a very good thief. I've stolen from almost every company I've worked for, and they don't know I've stolen from them. And my first sponsor had me donate the money I stole to charity, and I followed sponsor direction. And then I got to be about a year and a half sober, and I thought, if this is the best I get to feel, I'm going to drink. And I went in search of a new sponsor. And she said to me, it says direct amends. You didn't steal that money from charity, and you've got to pay back those businesses. I said, well, I've already paid back the money. She said, it wasn't charity's money. I said, then that means I'm paying that money back twice. She said, yeah, how willing are you? I wanted my seat here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll do anything to stay here in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I called those people up, and I showed up at their doorstep, and I told them that I had stolen from them. And I had some money in hand to start making payments, and they wouldn't take their money. And all the financial amends I made after that, they wouldn't take their money. Now, I didn't have to tell them how I stole from them so they could stop it from happening again. <laughs> but they would not take their money. And I believe that that's a direct result of being willing to do whatever it takes, including paying that money back twice. Now, I will tell you that when I get overcharged on a bill, I pay it. <laughs> I don't argue. I don't ask for it to be reduced. I just pay it because I've been very blessed in that area. Now, it did take me a little bit longer to teach me that I was problems with the men because I thought the problem was them. I was fine. It was them who was abusive. And my sponsor kept telling me the problem is you. You are the common denominator. And I would think, 
I'm just not quite explaining this to you correctly. <laughs> and I was four years sober in another abusive relationship, and my solution to that abusive relationship, have an affair. It makes perfect sense to me. It's how I deal with the problems. And I'm not telling anybody, because I don't think my sponsor's going to approve of that. <laughs> And I start backing myself out of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because that's hard behavior to practice while you're here sober. And I know that the women that I'm sponsoring, when they find out what I'm doing, they're going to go find a new sponsor. And I know my very life depends on me working with those women. And I get scared. Because I know how I drink. And that gun over in the state starts looking really good. Because I don't want to drink and use again. But putting a bullet in my head seems like a really good solution. So I call my sponsor. And I tell my sponsor what's going on. And my sponsor, my sponsor laughs at me. My sponsor says, honey, there are many of us here in Alcoholics Anonymous who act that way. Some don't anymore and some still do. Who do you want to be? And I decide that I don't like what I'm getting and I'm willing to do the work. And I go back through the steps again and guess what I find? I'm the problem. Because it wasn't all those guys, it was me. Because the truth is, if you don't treat me the way I want to be treated, I will hang around long enough to teach you how. And I can't tell you how many men I would back up against the wall and be in their face so they finally had no other solution but to raise their hand to me. Because it gave me that same sense of ease and comfort that drinking and using gave to me. And I absolutely hated taking responsibility for that. Because what kind of sick person wants to be beat up? So my sponsor said, no dating for you anymore. You don't treat men very well. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I think you didn't hear me very well. They're not waking up with black eyes. She said, the problem you. So I said, all right. So I didn't date for a year. Now, that may not seem like a long time for many people, but I haven't been without a man by my side since I was in the fifth grade. <laughs> And usually two, one on each side, because I'm not one to let go of one before I grab the other. <laughs> and then this boy and uh, this man in my uh, home group asked me out on a date. And, uh, you know, I didn't really want to go out with him because he's nothing like I like. He's not been to prison. <laughs> he works a good job. He loved his mama. And nobody in his family's ever been divorced. Like, who is that? <laughs> so my sponsor said, you got to go. So I said, all right, fine. So we go to the movies, and he has this little red pickup truck. And as I go, he pulls into the parking lot, and I go to get out of the door, and he says to me, I would appreciate it if you would wait for me to come around and open your car door. What? <laughs> I'm not liking this. So I get home that night and I call my sponsor and I say, I'm not going out with this guy again. And she says to me, what happened? Now my sponsor knows my story. And she's waiting for me to tell her that, you know, he mouthed off to the waitress or he stopped at the red light and got out and beat somebody up or he backhanded me for something. And I said to her, he wants to open my car door. And she says to me, she got real quiet for a moment. And then she says to me, what's wrong with that? I said, look, I know how to open my own car door. I don't need his help. And it takes him a long time to walk from one side of the car all the way to the other. And I feel stupid waiting. My sponsor got real quiet. And then she says to me, well, what I do is I put on lipstick while I'm waiting. I said, well, I don't wear lipstick. She said, try it. It'll grow on you. <laughs> oh, and I went on to marry that man. <laughs> and sometimes he would do really odd things like, honey, I know you're going to be out of town this week, and I'd like to go to the market and go grocery shopping for you. And I was saying, what is wrong with you? 
and it got so bad that uh, that gun that was in that safe, I said to him, you better take that gun out of here. And he says, why? What's the problem? I said, because many times when you want to go shopping at that grocery store, all I want to do is go get that gun and shoot you. <laughs> and I have to call my sponsor, and I have to tell my sponsor, he's at it again. And my sponsor will say, what's he doing? I said, he's being nice to me. He said, why don't you just try to thank you? And that's what I've been taught here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I am not here to tell you that's always easy. But I am here to tell you that Alcoholics Anonymous works no matter what. And I've been through a few things here in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I've not had to drink any use through any of it. And a few years back, I got real sick with hepatitis C and had to go on interferon treatments. And those treatments made me crazy. And the doctors wanted to put me on antidepressants because I was either homicidal or suicidal. And I was too afraid to go on those antidepressants. Because I knew eventually that treatment would be over, but no one could guarantee me that I could walk away from those antidepressants. And you told me that Alcoholics Anonymous would work no matter what. And so I said, I'm going to do AA no matter what. And I went to as many meetings as I could, and I got really sick, so I had to start cutting back on my AA program. And as I started to cut back, I, I, I just got sicker. I just have one of those lines. And I got to about seven months into that treatment, and I started thinking about that gun again. I, I don't like guns. <laughs> I started thinking about that gun again because that's a good solution. And I got on my knees and I asked God, please help me because I can't do this. And I got up off my knees and my phone rang. And it was a girl up in Northern California. And she said to me, I started interferon treatments three weeks ago and I hear you've been doing it and I'm having a hard time. And therein lies my solution to no matter what's going on. Every time that my husband would wake up and I'd be standing over him in the middle of the night contemplating his murder, the next morning I would call that girl and I would ask her, how are you? What's going on? And what can I do to make things easier for you? Because when I'm thinking about you, I'm not thinking about me. And therein lies my solution. And three weeks after I finished that treatment, my brother called me, and he said to me, I've just been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and they've given me three to six months to live. Now, I'm not particularly close with my family at this time, but I do what Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me. I get in the car and I drive up north. My brother lives in a little town called Clear Lake, about an hour and a half north of Sacramento. And I sit with that boy in, in his front yard around a campfire while he drinks all weekend long. And I go to leave that weekend, and he says to me, I'm not doing chemo. Because if I do chemo, i got to quit drinking. And I'm not stopping drinking. And I'll tell you, I was pissed. And I came home, and I talked to the people here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they told me, your brother didn't ask you how you felt about it. He said that's what he's going to do. And you're going to keep your mouth shut and show up and be a good sister. And I didn't know what that meant. But he told me, every month just drive up there. And so that's what I did. And I sat around those campfires while he drank himself to death. And those drinks started talking to me. And they started saying things like, I know he's an alcoholic, but his life's not so bad. Now he's living on the side of a mountain in a little trailer, dying of cancer, and there's nobody coming to see him but me, and he can't draw a sober breath. But I start thinking his life's not so bad. So I start going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous out there, because I need those women to help me stay sober. And my brother dies one day when I'm out there. And uh, his girlfriend, five minutes or the night before he, uh, he died, she's yelling at him. And I get up in the middle of the night and I tell her, why don't you go on to bed and I'll sit with my brother. And the next day when my brother dies, she comes out of the room hungover and I said to her, um, you know, he's just passed away. And that woman looks at me and she says, I can't believe I treated him the way I treated him last night. 
And I'll tell you, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I crossed that room, I put my arms around her, and I said to her, you did the best job that you could do. Because the truth is, that same brother and I sat in my mom's house and drank around the clock while she lay dying in, in the hospital of cancer. And I acted in despicable manners with that woman's husband. And even though I made amends for that stuff, I never got clean from that shame until I took care of that woman's son. And I, I knew when I did that with that girl, I was clear with my mom. And my mom's been dead for a very long time. She went off to the store, got a 12-pack of beer, and I went off to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was sharing that meeting what happened. And there was an old-timer in the back of the room. And he says to me, honey, if nobody told you this, I'm going to tell you this. We're going to miss you. Because the truth is, is I've watched you come here for the last six months and share with the woman here in this room in a level of honesty. And I realized for the very first time that Alcoholics Anonymous had changed me from a taker to a giver. Because I didn't go to those meetings to help those women. I went to those meetings so those women could help me. What didn't matter what I was thinking, what matters were my actions. And Alcoholics Anonymous had taught me, it doesn't matter where I'm at, put my hand out and ask how you're doing and what I can do to help you. Because when I'm thinking about you, I'm not thinking about me. Alcoholics Anonymous has made me into the very thing I have never, ever wanted to be. A lady. Thank you.